The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for the next level of leadership? It's going to be here before you know it. Today's leaders need the skills, connections, and savvy to become top professionals in their fields. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet people who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome today uh, to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. My name is Maureen Metcalf, and we're joined by Paul Gibbons. Paul's recent book is called The Science of Successful Organizational Change, and today we're going to be talking about helping organizations be more resilient, so anti-fragile and agile. So let me give you a little bit of Paul's background. He's worked at the nexus of science and leadership, philosophy and business, with 30 years of business experience, including investment banking, consulting, entrepreneurship, and university teaching. His consulting practice specialized in leading change and changing culture. Paul built a highly successful London consulting firm, Fortune Considerations, which he sold in 2010. In addition to building and running that firm, he's an accomplished author. His book, The Science of Successful Organizational Change, is hailed as a must-read by anyone serious about driving large-scale business change. Today, Paul's going to talk more about his book, which is a continuation of an earlier interview a few months ago, focusing on large-scale change and the concept specifically of agility and being anti-fragile, which are key foundational concepts to helping organizations drive change, respond to external shocks, and maintain resilience so that they can leverage the shocks that others are undermined by. So a little bit about the Innovative Leadership Show. My goal is to present information to current leaders and emerging leaders that will help you be more effective in innovating or updating how you lead. And Paul talking about driving successful change is a perfect contribution to that. So what I would suggest is think about one or two areas that you hear from Paul that you can implement in your ongoing work starting hopefully this week. If an innovative leader moves from command and control to taking the the mindset of a scientist, so as a leader, I no longer have all of the answers What I do have is the ability to spot on the horizon shocks or opportunities and find creative ways to leverage those to my advantage. And in doing that, I also not only do I need to spot them, but I need to continually update how I lead so that I can respond in a way that is more effective than my competition. So on this show, we're going to talk about specifically implementing large-scale change with Paul and these constructs of agility and anti-fragile and how those specifically enable us to be more effective. So, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, Maureen, uh, you've been entirely too flattering and uh, done an exceptionally uh, strong job of uh, introducing me already. I think I'm I'm almost ready to begin. I mean, I do want to say, I I guess, that... um, one of the things that I'm most passionate about is how science can help us create better leaders, better businesses, better institutions. And uh, the, the the only reason I think to do that is that so humanity has a, a brighter future, you know, more flourishing and happiness and well-being for the people who uh, live on the planet and then, you know, a healthier, more robust planet. So that's why I do what I do. And for me, the tool that is used sometimes to great advantage and also sometimes misused is science. And so that's that's where my passion and my interests lie. So that's probably enough about me. I think you did a great job. So um, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to roll if you are. 
I am. And I want to say you and I share that passion for science and evidence-based constructs, right? That, that the things that you recommend to our listeners are absolutely based in your 30 years of experience and scientifically grounded, theoretically proven. And I think that's one of the things that differentiates your work from so many people that tout themselves as leaders in the field. And yet history will, in most, in many of those cases, demonstrate that, in fact, they were leaders more in their own mind than they were effective at driving the results that you're talking about improving our planet. So thank you for for being such a solid thinker in, in your field. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. So in the chapter in your book on complexity and decision-making, you talk about the idea of anti-fragile. For some of our listeners, this is a new idea. So can you define it for us? What is it and why do we care? So, uh, yeah, I, the, the name is uh, – I wish I'd coined it myself, but I did not. <laughs> it comes from a guy called Nassim Taleb who um, was a statistician and a derivatives trader. Actually, he and I were the same firm on opposite sides of the ocean in, uh, in the 1980s. And um, he, 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 he's a very uh, – so he started in the world of practice and now he's um, uh, a theoretician and a professor and a public intellectual uh, and he is a burr in the side of you know almost anybody who does prediction for a living. Uh, he's very disdainful of economists and economic predictions, particularly in one of his books, The Black Swan, which was one of his earlier books, um, in fact, his first big book. Uh, he talks about we are uh, singularly bad as, as a world of predicting the events which matter most. So the things that make the biggest impact from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the meltdown of 2008 to the Fukushima disaster, all of the things that matter most, we are very, very bad at predicting them. Yet what we try and do is try and design systems that will protect us from the worst things that happen. So after writing The Black Swan, which was uh, thrust him onto the New York Times bestseller list and um, – really, I think, is a, is a really a marvelous first book for someone. He wrote another, and then his third uh, book, uh, maybe his fourth, in fact, uh, was called Antifragility. And so, yeah, it's a strange word, and it's a neologism, so he coined it himself. So he opens the book with uh, a very beautiful metaphor. He says that fire is strengthened by the wind, and hmm. a candle is blown out. We want to be like the fire. And that's how he begins his discussion of antifragility. So all that's very abstract. What he wants to say is that there are certain things, particularly in nature, that are strengthened by stressors. And so that's the key concept of antifragility. No, it's often compared with resilience. And he doesn't mean that. He means much more. So resilience mm -hmm. for a human being or a business means you bounce back, right? If I have a mishap or my business has a mishap, if I'm resilient – a few days later or shortly later, if I'm a business, I'll be back to where I was. Antifragility is I'll be back and I'll be back much better than I ever was. So that's the concept in a, in, in a nutshell. I appreciate the distinction because I'm the one who said resilience. And I guess in my mind, I actually think of I become more resilient under stress. So, yes, so, resilience, your resilience, uh, your ability to bounce back is strengthened by life's mishaps. So what are some real-world examples of anti-fragility in the business arena that our listeners can relate to? Well, let's, uh, let's contrast it with fragile. So we can see fragile is a, you know, a startup business with no capital. Um, there's a slight market downturn and they're wiped out. So that's a fragile business. So the next step and um, – uh, Taleb refers to this as the triad, is robust. So robust is better. We, what we try and do is protect our fragile systems from the world. We try and control, we try and manage, we try and ensure. And one strategy we use, for example, in banks, for example, is we diversify. So if you diversify your assets widely enough in a bank, then when the storm hits, only a few of your assets will be hit and you'll be robust. So, um, and we all have a sense of resilience and robustness and that's what we try and do, um, you know, through most of societies. We try to manage, mm -hmm. plan, control and predict. So from Taleb's point of view, that's a mugs game um, because 
we leave ourselves when we try and do that more vulnerable to the things that really matter, which are the black swans. So what's anti-fragile? What are some examples of that? Uh, if you put people in spacecrafts and take them where there's no gravity, their bones deteriorate. So the gravity, the pounding from running, from walking, from lifting, strengthens bone. Also, weightlifters strengthen muscles, but when they lift more weight than they can easily manage, they break muscle tissue down, but which results in an increased muscle mass and increased strength. And we all have a sense of how many of us, anyway, are emotional mishaps. We've become stronger, more compassionate, more resilient, and a better human being, if you want, through those mishaps. So it's easy to see at the kind of human level what anti-fragility looks like. I had a, a little business, my little business future considerations in London. And uh, uh, I think we only had, uh, at the peak, we had 25 people and 25 associates. So uh, it was big for a leadership consultancy and we nearly went under. I mean, we went under twice. And uh, one time we nearly went under. Um, the accountants told me to shut the door and uh, open up across the street and go bankrupt. And uh, we didn't do that. But the fact that we nearly went bust made us completely reinvent our business model. And so at my little small scale business uh, in London, the fact that we had this stressor, we responded in such a way as that we were much, much stronger. And actually the business is in its 16th year. So it's about 10 or 11 years after that crisis. So the question is, um, do organizations learn like that? And the question I'm going to leave it for listeners to ponder is, have we done enough with the banks and the banking system post-2008? Or we are just as fragile as we were the black swan events or perhaps even more fragile still and there are people who think that we've actually made the, the global financial system more fragile uh since 2008 so those are some things that we that we need to think of um one example i can't you know really uh neither taleb nor me can think of a, a business that is like emblematic of antifragility i think there are some people who get close, and I'll talk about a few of those later. But one super, super, super good business example is Silicon Valley. If you consider the ecosystem at all, Silicon Valley has been subjected to more disruptive change in its 100-year history than you know any other industry, right? You think about technology. They started with radio when radio okay. was in was a new thing in the early part of the 20th century. That's the earliest. And things like typewriters and cash registers. So those were the high-tech, you know, first Silicon Valley companies were in those areas now, which seem fairly quaint to us now. And it's been disruption, wave of disruption, of wave of disruption, of wave of disruption, of wave of disruption since then. And you could say, and I and I do say, Silicon Valley now is in better shape than it's ever ever been as a as a as a business ecosystem. It functions extremely well, and some enormous percentage of U.S. venture capital finds its way to Silicon Valley. I can't recall now uh, so, the precise number. So anyway, I think it's a great example of antifragility in action. So I wonder because I'm I have and am working with um, an NPR station. I've worked with technology firms. Um, all who have persisted, but but specifically my NPR guys talk about being in radio at a point in time where the industry is changing dramatically and really looking at what what is the future of radio look like. So what is it that Silicon Valley has done as an ecosystem? Is it that they have a mindset toward innovation? Well, certainly, but it's one of the things that you see in Silicon Valley is we see the, the unicorns, the successes. There's a massive amount of destruction and failure. Massive uh -huh. amount. So in Silicon Valley, it's almost like a badge of honor that you have a failed startup early in your career. I mean, that's not always the case, something like that. But they're um, very they, – they, they expect – they don't try and, if you will, preserve companies that have – poor business models. They kind of let the market, if you will, uh, do its work. 
and, mm. and sift and winnow. And then all of the people who are in these partially functioning companies are redistributed towards highly functioning companies. And all of the capital that was at risk in the small companies, you know, is, is redeployed of that which is left, you know, towards the companies mm-hmm. that are things. So they have a natural robustness. And, um, and also the Silicon Valley model is interesting because now um, the Silicon Valley model, I think, is hailed as one of the things that makes Tesla so successful, the Silicon Valley model and mindset, and SpaceX, two of uh, Musk's innovations. And so now Silicon Valley is actually frightening the bananas out of the global car industry because they're doing things that no other car company does, and they're doing them better. And so, and that's the same with SpaceX also. I mean, SpaceX are arguably the, the leading space uh, exploration, space travel company in the world. SpaceX have a vision of being able to colonize Mars by the year 2040. It's a very bold ambition, but they are, again, using a Silicon Valley model. Um, And so I think Silicon Valley has a lot to teach the business world. Now, what makes Silicon Valley as a system so robust is the fragility of the individual companies. The fact that they let them fail. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So I'm going to summarize and then we're going to go to break. So what I hear, and I find this fascinating, um, is that in in the spirit of making the whole system successful, I have to let the, the weaker in the litter perish and not like we would eat the, the weaker in the litter, yes. but yeah. in the case of capital and machinery and other resources, including people. That that it is d- those resources that are used suboptimally are reallocated, and the overall system then becomes more effective. You got it. Perfect. So with it. that, we're going to go to break. Thank you very much. This is Maureen Metcalf and Paul Gibbons, innovative leaders driving thriving organizations, and we're talking about anti-fragile and how that construct helps businesses be more effective. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. 
Welcome back. This is Maureen Metcalf with Paul Gibbons, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. And we're talking about the concept of anti-fragile and specifically how this construct helps us as businesses be more effective and implement change more effectively. So, Paul, why should this be of interest to business leaders? Well, um, businesses are very fragile things. So only one of the Dow Jones, uh, original Dow Jones companies from 1915, uh, 101 years old now, uh, General, I believe it's General Electric, is still in business. So that's an extraordinary thing. Uh, if you think about it, that's a failure rate over a century of 92%. Now, if you think of a fact of species and ecosystems on this planet living for 500 million or a billion years, companies are very fragile things. And so I think uh, every business leader wants to believe that they can build a legacy which will last far beyond their lifetime. And so there, there, there you have one interest we should have as business shareholders and business stakeholders, building a business which is – um, not just robust, not can just defend itself against shocks, but is actually improved with and, and ready and able. I, I think I use this metaphor in, in the book. I hope Taleb wouldn't kill me for it. Is able to surf the waves rather than get swept over by them. And then, so that's the, I think the high ground for businesses is that they're um, anti fragile in that respect. And so I think most business leaders would nod their head at that um, as a concept, as something that's a desirable. Uh, if you will, attribute for a business. And, and as I said before, I, I don't think many are there. You know, one of the things that it sounds like is a bit of a mindset shift. If I'm thinking of, of different organizations with which I've worked, either internal or external, we fall in love with our own ideas. And the idea that you mentioned earlier, taking it from an ecosystem uh, of Hello. Silicon Valley to the ecosystem of my company. So if I think of the ecosystem of my company rather than the ecosystem of Silicon Valley, I have a number of service lines and uh, different product offerings. I need to be willing to kill the ones that are a drag on the business, whether they've exceeded their useful life or whether they just failed to launch mm -hmm. in service of investing my time, energy, resources in something that is going to be mediocre at best. That's right. Yep. That, that's that's a, a reasonable summary of what we're talking about. Yep. Okay. So do we as um, – do we know of business organizations – I think you said we don't know many that really are anti-fragile. Well, on the timescales that we were talking about, really, from the Industrial Revolution, you know, as someone said, I think someone asked Chairman Mao what he thought of democracy. He said it's far too easy to, far too early to tell <laughs> um, in, in 1973 or whenever. Um, so uh, in some senses, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point to a company in a minute, mm -hmm. which is uh, a whole hundred years old. So uh, from the point of view from which I look at things, that's not terribly old. But IBM is one company that began by making uh, scales for weighing produce in the uh, late part of the 19th century. And then the early part of the 20th century, it was making meat slicers. Hmm. And, and then it made punch clocks and coffee grinders and typewriters. And now I'm only up to the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And then it was right, right there at the uh, computer revolution, the birth of the digital age in uh, 19, uh, approximately 37. And then there's been probably nothing that's been more uh, disruptive than the computer and the information technology revolution over the past uh, about 75 years since the first computer went into operation. So they have been able to, despite their size, dance with all those different technologies and I think another company that was uh, number one in the mobile phone industry for uh, a number of uh, years, almost until two or three years ago, was Nokia. Uh, less well-known in America than it is in Europe, but um, still number one in handsets in the world. And they were in rubber and forestry and uh, lots of heavy industries. So I think those are two companies um, that I like to point at. Uh, again, the saying that, okay, 100 years is not – from my point of view, that long a time, but mm -hmm. they've been able to ride the waves of disruption extremely successfully. 
Um, so I think uh, I think I think those are two signature examples, and I'm I'm sure there are, sure sure there are other ones, but those are two that I think I think we need to look at over very long time scales. And unfortunately, when it comes to corporations, we don't have that many examples. So, so you just said something that strikes me as really important: ride the wave of dis- disruption. What what is it about an organization that allows me to ride that wave? Oh, well, that's a fabulous question. I mean, I think one of the things that you see in nature is you see great redundancy of the subunits. So you see smaller subunits, which are interdependent, yet uh, independent. Um, And in in nature, particularly, you see lots of uh, destruction and recreation during these smaller subunits. And uh, one example of that is the process of evolution, which is, you know, a very harsh uh, process is, um, I think it was um, Shakespeare said, nature is nature is red in tooth and claw. So that internal disruption, destruction, I mean to say, within companies of small subunits and redundancy is certainly one feature. I think one thing also, if I may add, I mean, I have, I have a list of several things, but uh, one other thing is that we try to, uh, in the world, uh, make decision-making based on predictions, so you've been in consulting a long time, Maureen. Mm-hmm. We make predictions of how long a project will take. We'll make a prediction of how big the market will be and how many units we'll sell mm-hmm. and what market share we'll have. In fact, the whole world, you could say the whole business world is really based on some extent, even when you start any business, you're making a prediction about how it will prosper. And uh, 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 Taleb says, and, and I think I agree with him, that uh, there are limits we have as human beings to be able to predict the future. Well, that sounds like a trivial thing to say. Of course we, of course we are, but he, his aim, if you will, with antifragility is to have a science of non-predictive decision-making. How does that sound? Decision-making that's not super-duper sensitive to our predictions. Doesn't that sound interesting? It does. And the the term sensitive, it, I, I want to talk about that for just a second. So as I'm thinking of redundancy of subunits, specifically, I also think of organizations that have become incredibly lean. So if I run a restaurant in Ohio, where I'm based, and we're subject to, you know, snowstorms in the winter. If I have just enough stock, if the interstates are closed for two days, what does that do to my business? So I'm incredibly lean, and that seems good for cash flow. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not resilient, or I'm not fragile. able. Yeah, you're fragile. You're, you are fragile, yeah. So, so lean can mean fragile. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example. So these constructs are at odds they are they are they are somewhat at odds yes but now obviously if a company's hemorrhaging money because it's inefficient if you call that the opposite of lean for the sake of argument then obviously mm-hmm. it's vulnerable also but but certainly one of the concepts in nature i mean uh, take an example uh this is an example from taleb's book i wish i thought of this one myself also um as we we try and protect forests from fires of any kind but actually a little bit of fire is good for a forest because it cleans out all the dry tinder and all of the stuff that's combustible materials. So these little, small fires, in fact, pre- prevent the big fires. And so we're interested, when you're interested in forest maintenance, and this is an example from his book, is we try and make the forest robust by preventing any fires whatsoever. But what we do is we make it vulnerable to a huge fire, which is some of what we see sometimes in the West where I live in, in the Rocky Mountains and certainly in California. Yeah, some, someone who... Huh? It, it is. As someone who ran a nature preserve for a while, I, I was really closely connected to the cycles of nature and what is a controlled amount of destruction in service of the other is some trees don't germinate unless there's a fire. Oh, well, that I didn't know. That's very interesting. So, so actually, fire is required for the health of the forest, but obviously what you see on the West Coast, when half of the coast is ablaze, is not healthy. So, so if we were to manage, you know, we as humans want to insert our houses in the woods, which are beautiful, but they remove. We then try to control the the ecosystem in a way that takes away its natural cycles. Yes, and those natural cycles 
are what makes it anti-fragile. So we make the, in the short term, we make things robust, but in the longer term, we make things much more fragile. And I guess that's the trade-off that Taleb says, is you can make things robust in the short term, but you're making them much more fragile in the long term. So anything we try to do to manage then economic cycles would also make our economy more fragile. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, this sort of steers a little bit into the political. So if you have a company which has a very flexible labor um, uh, model, um, you know, very flexible labor laws, able to shed workers mm-hmm. very quickly, lots of mm-hmm. contractors, project big workers. So take a company like that. It will be very resilient to shocks, right? When the market da- downturn, you get rid of a ton of people. And when the market's better, you hire them back. So that's an example of a company which, to some extent, is uh, robust, right? That company is robust. But it's mm-hmm. robust at the expense of the subunits. Now, those subunits, I have a special name for them. They're called human beings. And human beings have lives and livelihoods. So then we run into something that's not talked about enough, is the ethics of the situation. So when people talk about, for example, the U.S. car industry should be allowed to fail, from an anti-fragility point of view, they're absolutely right. There's no question that it was very inefficient in the way it used resources, and it had been really inefficient for 30 or 40 years. It had been outpaced by European and Japanese uh, car makers, and it was maybe time for it to, you know, shut down and regrown from the embers. Um, but the subunits in the United States car industry were uh, somewhere between 1 million and 2 million workers. So we, what we did was we made the livelihoods of those workers more robust by keeping them fully employed. But of course, that makes the industry itself, because it's cash flow uh, economic model, is we make the industry more vulnerable. And so this is one thing when you look at the levels in a system from the subunits to the higher units to the ecosystem level, the business level, then the business parts of the business level. You talked about different lines of business. And then the the level at the lowest level, which you could say is the individual livelihoods of the people in it. There can be trade-offs. You can make one part of the system robust, which makes another part of the system more fragile. Or you make in the instance of business, if you protect people's livelihoods, then you make the entire business more fragile. So these trade-offs at every level, and this poses us to us, I think, a great and interesting uh, moral dilemma, an economic dilemma. So I think you hit, the, you hit the nail right on the head there. Which is a fascinating subject for me as an economist, but as a business leader, it's also interesting how do I, within, if I look at the systems and subunits as my enterprise, how does this play out? And then if I expand my lens to my industry, if my goal is for my my company to thrive, how do I ensure that happens in a way that does create stability for my workers? Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Indeed, indeed. So this sounds like we have just hit the crux of the issue it is – understanding kind of a balance between lean and efficient, because certainly I don't want to be inefficient, but how, how efficient is too efficient to be, that throws me into fragile. It does, and, yes, it can, yeah. And the other is how do I attend to the natural cycles by pruning, Indeed, and, and you're gonna and you're gonna love this. I mean, you know, again, it may be from an ecosystem point of view right to cull certain predators or certain species in an ecosystem, but when those species are human beings, uh, you know, I mean, I think we ought to be morally sensitive to that. Um, so, yeah, that- I. Yeah, I'm a a bit of a fan of humans uh, since most of my work involves them, <laughs> and so inflicting suffering. Right in a, a million people so that an industry can be more profitable does have its ethical questions. I realize as a business, our our legal responsibility in a corporation is to maximize return to shareholders, but it, it does seem that we have some moral obligation to the million employees to also attend to fairness and equity and consider them as a reasonable stock stakeholder at the same time. 
Yeah, and that's particularly mostly true in American corporate law. I mean, European corporate law, um, certainly post the financial crisis of 2000, 2008, um, acknowledges in law the moral importance of uh, other stakeholders. I mean, if stakeholders have a moral claim on the business, then it surely should be true that that, should be, that moral claim on the business should be codified in our laws Mm-hmm. So when you say that the law says we have to maximize returns to share, shareholders and that can be at the expense of um, either the environment or human lives and livelihoods or communities mm-hmm. or whatever else, uh, it's not possible for them to have a moral claim without that claim being somehow codified in law. And European company law now reflects some of those moral claims. And that again impacts the fragility of the organization it by does. not – by long-term commitment to employees when you've said the, the most effective from a business perspective, I realize not from a human social perspective, is people are more transient and yet that then requires an entire infrastructure around human transition that, that we have kind of this independent worker idea that is maybe not a whole lot unlike itinerant workers in farms. And and now yes. we call ourselves all consultants. Well, indeed, indeed. And, you know, for a worker today, if you get down to the perspective of a worker, is how do I have a career that's not fragile? And so one of the ways to have a fragile career is have a very nas- narrow specialism in something that might, for example, be time-boxed or something that's disrupted by technology, and then also not learn because if you were a computer programmer, for example, and you learned COBOL in the 1960s and 1970s, everyone else did. By the 1990s, you'd be, you'd be out of date. And in fact, the pace of that particular industry, unless a computer programmer is reinventing themselves almost every several years, the pace is changing so quickly that unless you reinvent yourself every two or three years, you become a dinosaur. And so that's one example of how a career may be made fragile. Maureen. I love the idea that we're now, that we've talked about businesses and down to careers. So let's go to break at this point and come back and talk a little bit more about how fragility does apply to careers and how as a leader, I might manage my own career to be anti-fragile. So this is Maureen Metcalf and Paul Gibbons. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you know how to tell a great story? In business, the stories you tell play a big role in your success. Whether you're trying to get more clients or influence people as a leader, storytelling will help you do it. Story Powered with Leanne Pico is here to help you activate your storytelling superpower to build a better business and achieve your goals and dreams. Story Powered can be heard live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. As the author of eight award-winning leadership books, Maureen Metcalf and her associates are positioned to help you and your organization grow and thrive. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen is ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your needs through her expertise in keynote speaking, leadership coaching and training, transformational and organizational growth consulting. For your business, we can help with facilitated leadership retreats, organizational planning, culture alignment, individual and organizational assessments, online leadership development programs, and one-on-one or corporate-wide leadership development sessions. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. We went to break and we're talking about leaders and the idea of fragile careers. And Paul, you mentioned not learning and having a narrow specialty. So as we think about how do I ensure as a leader who is most likely moving between companies as either they shift focus or as I find better opportunities, it sounds like there are some specific prescriptions for what will allow me to remain effective. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, certainly, I know I know you spend a lot of time developing senior leaders, and one of the things I sometimes see is that um, leaders will um, spend entirely too little time on their own development. There's a sort of culture in many organizations that by the time someone reaches 45, they've learned formally all they need to learn, and the rest of it they'll pick up by osmosis. And that, that's not the case with people who are I think the very best who are always educating themselves, always developing themselves in some sense or another. But it's absolutely vital, I think, if you're going to be uh, have any sense of agility or antifragility in your career to be a lifelong learner. Uh, it's acute in industries like engineering and computer programming. It's acute in the sciences if you were a scientist trained in the 1970s and 1980s, unless you're keeping up. But in business, you know, the culture and the demands on business people – uh, don't really require them. There's no really accountability for business people being up to date with the most recent ideas. Their, their feet aren't really held to the fire, I don't think, sufficiently. And yet, at least it, because my business is talking about how leaders innovate, how they lead, with the volume of change we're now facing, it seems incumbent upon leaders to accelerate that pace of learning. But they sure is- don't, right? I mean, by and large. So let me go back to something you mentioned earlier that was fascinating to me, and to, and to me there's a connect here. You talked about black swans and non-predictive decision-making. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, again, not learning. Tell me a little bit about non-predictive decision-making. Isn't it fascinating? It's a fascinating subject. So I think it's a new area. So one of the things that you know as a consultant is that when you put together a project plan, you put together a single-figure budget and you put together a plan that's got a single delivery date. So mm-hmm. anybody who's ever been in project world know that those numbers are more often than not fantasies. It's documented in yeah. something called the planning <laughs> fallacy. So what we need to do is model our businesses on the appropriate statistical distribution of outcomes. And at the very least – And I never see this. You see, I've been in consulting a very long time. When I see a consulting proposal, it's got a single number for the price and a single budget. So it's based on a prediction of how quickly they'll be able to do things. And organizations contort themselves to meet the time and budget. But we're living in a fantasy world because in the real world of projects, as we know, there's a distribution of outcomes. And sometimes that distribution is a very long tail. I mean, sometimes projects take twice as long as predicted. So... That's just a one single example of how a leader can be much more live in the real world of non-predictive decision-making and not base the success of their business on being able to predict the future with a level of certainty that's a fantasy. And yet, I'm thinking of most of my clients, if I said it might cost between a hundred and 200000 they would be... They'd show you the door. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they would. I mean, if I imagine, I, I do put this in my book, imagine a, a guy who's an ambitious vice president going up and making a project proposal and saying exactly what you just said. Um, the project to delivery date is nine months. Um, but it Plus or minus a, a year. It could, take, it could take, yeah, it could take as long as 15 months. Our expected ROI is that it will make us $50 million, but some of the time we'll lose 20 and, uh, the, <laughs> you know, I mean, he'd be out of a job, but that's yeah. because he's talking about the real world and mm-hmm. the distribution of outcomes. The corporate culture doesn't talk about a distribution of outcomes. They talk about point estimates and those estimates are fantasies. And so what do you do about that? Having grown up in finance, at least early in my career, I know they're, I know they're fantasies. And we were forced to pick a number 
and then manage the heck out of it, even if it was not necessarily the best right. final outcome because we wanted to hit our numbers. You can, and you can torture yourself. You do all kinds of unintended consequences and all kinds of workarounds, and I'll call them cheats. I don't mean fraud, but do all kinds of, 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 of shortcutting to try and hit a number. Whereas, in fact, the real world operates in probability distributions and not in point mm-hmm. estimates. It's a change in corporate culture. It's a change in the way we think about things. And so it also means how we report our earnings to the street, it seems. If I'm being held to a quarter of a cent in earnings, I don't have the freedom to miss my numbers. No, you don't. So the culture, yes, of course, goes all the way up to the very, very top. Um, so, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I say the very, very top. I mean, to the whole ecosystem, so the, the whole mm-hmm. capitalist ecosystem, the expectations of investors, to the uh, restrictions put on chief executives, to the requirements chief executives make of their chief financial officers, to the requirements the chief financial officers make of the people who propose budgets to them and manage business units. So, it's, uh, it's all the way down. Yes, for sure. So it seems like then as organizations, if I'm a publicly, if I'm running a publicly traded company, I'm in an ecosystem that gives me very little opportunity to to deal with this other than to continue doing what I'm doing. uh, Very likely that a CFO at a medium-sized company could change the culture of Wall Street. Um, and, and that's a shame. And then and Taleb and, and other authors I admire today, one called Nate Silver, who wrote a book called The Signal and the Noise, um, one called Dan Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, they talk about this fantasy that we live in, that the world is a certain way and we're able to make predictions with great certainty and the fact that we can tort ourselves to try and work to those predictions um, and the costs to us. And one of the costs, of course, is fragility. Um, so... Uh, it's 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 a it's a, it's an almost it's a human mindset. There's a there's a German author called Gigerentzer who talks about being educated in probabilities and in risk. And we're not talking to he's not talking about turning everybody in who's in eleventh grade into statisticians, but understanding when someone says the risk of cancer is doubled if you do this, what that means in the real world, mm-hmm. or even trivial things like. There's a 50% chance of rain tomorrow. The even statistics that we throw around uh, with one another um, are grotesque, are grotesquely misunderstood. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, from his, from his point of view, and I think it's, there are great public health and personal consequences to that. So, what do you do about it? Well, there's a, a, a great, uh, a, a great initiative. A great, I mean, the education process, the re-education of, if you want, uh, business leaders in the wider world has started with people like Taleb, with Silver, with this guy Gigerentzer. Is we need to begin to think about the world in the way the world really is, which is in terms of probabilities. Now that sounds very abstract, but it's not really something that we are taught very young. Statistics and probabilities are abstract, you know, high-level stuff. And most of us don't have to get to grips with it. So, I mean, that's one thing. But if you look in the public health world and you look at the statistics that human beings are supposed to take advantage of to manage their own lives and their own, you know, health outcomes, their own diets, even that, you know, we're confronted daily with information that we misunderstand. So that's part of it. Um, I mean, I think the other part that we touched on more in is people being uh, lifelong learners. I mean, one of the most destructive things, one of the most important fragilizers is a really fixed mindset. That is to say, a mindset that's not porous or that's closed to information from the outset. The business example of that, perhaps, is, is BlackBerry, which we're absolutely sure that this idea of a, a keyboard on the screen was uh, just a fad and that what people really would always want is a keyboard attached to their phone. And absolutely wrong, but they absolutely firmly refuse to acknowledge that. So that fixedness of mindset is one thing. And so the other thing I think, Maureen, that we need to do about it is information sharing. And there's a very interesting contrast in the world. When an airline crashes, it's a great disaster. But the information on how that happens is shared so widely in the industry that airlines have become you know, incredibly safe. And they continue to become safer all the time because of the sharing of information. However, um, compare the banking system where there's a fraud or a significant loss and that those are frequently treated as private affairs, and there's not the same culture of uh, collaboration and sharing information to make the risks in the whole system lower. 
So does that make some sense or how are we doing? Yeah, it does. So, so a few things I'm hearing, and interestingly, some of these are not new. The idea of probability, so, so we say our ROI is going to be 20%, but what's the probability that we actually hit that would be a question I would ask anyone making a proposal to me as one. Uh, this idea of fixed mindsets is interesting because as we, as we look at leadership development and leadership maturity specifically, the underlying construct that we talk about is worldview. So it is foundationally changing my operating system for how I see the world. So do I look through the lens of making a mistake makes me bad, or do I look through the lens of if I'm learning, of course I'm making mistakes. And those foundationally change everything I see and how I see it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, absolutely right. So let's, I'm going to wrap up because I want to give you an opportunity to steer people to your book and uh, have a way to contact you. So as we've talked about the idea of anti-fragility, a few things I heard, a redundancy of subunits and being willing to destroy in service of redistributing resources. So not destroying resources, not killing jobs, but using the Silicon Valley example that as ineffectively used resources are reallocated to more productive outcomes, then the entire ecosystem benefits. Absolutely right, Maureen. Absolutely right. Um, the, we also talked about the science of non-predictive decision-making and, and the idea that in corporations, given the ecosystem that we all inhabit, there's an expectation that is faulty that I can predict something in advance, in some cases years in advance, and then deliver it down to the, the week or the day, to the dollar, to the level of quality without, a, without significant adjustment is also an unreasonable expectation if I want to optimize my outcomes and create a system that is robust rather than fragile. Yep, also very good. Yeah, very, very, very nice summary. Thank you. And then the third I would say is if we take away natural rhythms and we use the example of the forest, again, I become more fragile. So with that, Paul, why don't you share the name of your book and then we'll go to wrap. Uh, what I tried to do in the Science of Successful Organizational Change, um, which came out in last June, is really take all of what I think the best thinking from intellectuals and researchers around the world in areas that business people don't read. So there's uh, insights on that fragility from a statistician, there's public health and medicine and, and uh, economics. So rather than um, a book, which is a lot about business leadership being based on um, the soft sciences of psychology and so forth really tried to bring the latest in the behavioral sciences to the practice of organizational change and update the world of change with 21st century thinking. So that's the ambition of the book. I, I hope some people might agree that I've realized it. And uh, it's called The Science of Successful Organizational Change. And um, with that, thank you very much, Maureen. Thank you, Paul. This is Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, and I hope that our conversation today gave you some additional insights that you may be able to apply in your daily work in the coming weeks. We would love to hear from you. Email me at info at metcalf-associates.com. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 